good morning. It is a pleasure to be here. Now you will find out after listening to me for a little bit this morning that you're going to understand our motto at College Church is the preaching ain't much, but our singing's still good. So if you ever get down in Cersei, I hope you'll stop in and, and see us. But it is a pleasure to be here. And I am intimidated, uh, not so much by the room, and that would be intimidating enough, but, but the topic, Acts chapter 2, that's our chapter. That's, that's, that's the chapter that the churches of Christ, we have that one better than anybody. I mean, that's our chapter. And so my challenge today is what can I say or what can we kind of work through in this chapter that you haven't already heard? So I want to maybe just allow us to sort of think about chapter 2 of Acts a little bit different than we normally do, especially in regards to how you, as a gospel preacher, would approach Acts chapter 2. And too oftentimes, when I hear men preach Acts chapter 2, they start in Acts chapter 2. And to really understand the second chapter that Luke gives uh, there in Acts, you really need to start in, in uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 24. That is after the resurrection, and the apostles are in a room. John's gospel tells us that it's locked because they are afraid of the Jews. So they're in a room behind locked doors, and Jesus appears in their midst, and he says, Peace be to you. I find my notes. And all of a sudden, he appears in, in their midst. And then he speaks these words to them. He, they're frightened because they think they've seen a ghost. So he shows them his hands and his wounds to reassure them who he is. And then a, the scripture says he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, thus it is written, Christ should suffer. Am I on here yet? Yes, sir. Am I in there? There we go. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead that repentance and forgiveness. I'm going to go back five seconds. That repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in the name of all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending you, uh, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, Jesus has given them their first commission to stay in the city until they are clothed with power from on high. And then they are going to go out and preach a message of repentance and forgiveness. When you come to Acts chapter 1... Man, I got this thing all. There we go. I know. Five minutes into the first presentation. There we go. Thank you. I ran out of battery the other day. I said, you, you'll learn when I preach. You better put fresh batteries in. But in Acts chapter 1, he gathers them again together, and he's basically going to reiterate what he told them in Luke chapter 24. 
He says, you will receive... This is why I don't do PowerPoint at, at college church, because I don't micromanage very well. I can preach, but I can't do PowerPoint. How many of you do your own PowerPoint? You, you, man, you're better than I am. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And again, he says, in Jerusalem. So he tells them they're going to preach a message of repentance and forgiveness, now, it's going to start right there in Jerusalem. But then he says, I want you to go far beyond that from Jerusalem throughout all of Judea into Samaria. That probably made them cringe a little bit. And then eventually to the uttermost parts of the world. Now, hearing those last words would have been enough. But hearing those last words and then watching him ascend back to the Father in heaven must have done something in those men. Because those men who were behind locked doors in chapter 24 of Luke, now they are going to be more committed, more devoted, more passionate than they have ever been about Jesus and his message before. And so they go back in Jerusalem. Now, while they're waiting, they're praying. Peter's the one that says, we need to find a replacement for Judas. The lots are cast. It falls on a good man by the name of Matthias. And now they're a full number of 12 again. And so things are going just like that Jesus would want. Finally, in 10 days, they're waiting for this promise that Jesus made to them of the coming of the Holy Spirit who will empower them. By the way, anybody in here a lot like me and the Holy Spirit is still a very mysterious thing to you? I mean, I, I preach Holy Spirit, I preach series, but to be honest, I'm still very anemic in, in my understanding of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's still kind of a subject that's aloof to me because I know there's so much about Him and, and his power in my life that I do not fully appreciate. I don't think that the Holy Spirit was a very mysterious thing to those apostles. Because of what Jesus said earlier. Are we doing it again? I don't think it's very mysterious because Jesus had told them earlier in John chapter 14... This is that night that they're celebrating the last Passover. Jesus has told them that he's going and where he goes they cannot come. And he said, I'm not going to leave you like orphans. But he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, your translation may say comforter or counselor, but I'll give you a helper. And he will guide you into the, the spirit of truth. He will be the one that guides you into understanding all that I have taught you. I don't think it was a very mysterious thing to these men because Jesus said he's coming to help you, to comfort you, to guide you. And so, you come to the day of Pentecost. They've waited 10 days. And now it says, suddenly. Now, this day of Pentecost, I don't have to tell you what this is like. You've preached the day of Pentecost. You know that tens of thousands of Jews from all over the world have come to Jerusalem for the purpose of sacrificing to God and worshiping to God. And they have come from everywhere. And Luke tells us, they're, verse 5, they're devout men. 
Why would they travel such great distances if they were not devout, or your translation may say, God-fearing men? And there are Parthians and Medes and Elamites and people from Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, near Cyrene, Rome. The Cretans are there. The Arabs are there. The, the city is teeming with people from different parts of the world speaking different languages, but they're there for the purpose of worship. And then suddenly... There comes this sound like a mighty rushing wind. It fills the entire house where they are. Now you can read in chapter 1, how many are in that house all together? 120. 120. And, and I know there's a lot of disagreement on this, but I really believe if you follow the pronouns from chapter 1 to chapter 2, that when the Holy Spirit is... is in that house, divided tongues, it appears on them and rests on them. The they and the them from chapter 1 continually refers to the apostles. And so the Holy Spirit doesn't come on the 120. These tongues of fire don't rest on the 120, but on the 12. Now that's where I land. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues. And you know that that's not the gibberish that we hear about tongue speaking today. That was different languages from all of these people that travel from the different places around the world. And these unschooled Galileans are speaking in every person's language. And many in Jerusalem hear this sound. They converge on this place in Jerusalem looking for the source of this weird sound of wind that they've never heard before and they come and they find these apostles and they find them speaking in tongues, speaking in these languages and their prejudice begins to seep out of them. The idea that these unschooled Galileans are speaking in this language and his language and her language it is more than they are willing to accept. Now, I've been in ministry long enough, and I've worked with enough elders long enough and with enough members long enough. I know that when people see something they don't like or they hear something that they don't particularly like and they don't know the answers, what do they do? They make it up. Well, I know what the elders did. The elders just made this decision. They're just going to make us uh, 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 like it. Or, or that preacher, he gets his way. And I, the preacher just goes into those elders' meetings and, and they just do whatever he says. Well, they've never been in one of those elders' meetings. How do they know what really takes place? And I've had a lot of folks talk about Harding and College Church and they'll, they'll tweet out or they'll put it on their Facebook or some other social media. They'll say something about the leadership and how the College Church, one time, the College Church picks the president of Harding. And I'm thinking, I've been in hundreds of elders meetings at College Church, and we have never discussed who would be the president at Harding. But when people don't like or don't understand something, they make it up. Well, they, they see something that they don't particularly like. Unschooled people speaking in different languages, so they just assume... Well, they're drunk with wine. Now, I am not an expert in inebriation. 
In fact, to my knowledge, I've never been drunk in my life, except for that one time that I did abuse Vic's Formula 44D uh, with a terrible cold. I was a little loopy that night. But I've never been drunk. But what I understand about people who are drunk, it, it doesn't improve your speech capacity. It slurs your speech, and it makes you in... It makes you kind of unintelligible in the language that you do know. It doesn't make you speak fluently other language that you've never studied. And yet, they're drunk with wine. So Peter says, let me tell you what it is that's going on and what you're seeing here today. What you're seeing is men who are not drunk like you think they are. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. We're crying out loud. But... What you're seeing is exactly what the prophet Joel wrote about. Now, these are devout men, so they know who Joel is. And he says about what Joel, uh, Joel said, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, the signs of the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter basically is saying two things here. One, what you are witnessing is what Joel said. We are prophesying just like Joel said we would. Number two, today is a day of salvation to everyone. Not just to men, women too. Not just to Jews, but you're going to find out Gentiles. This is a day of salvation for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And he has really captured their attention at this moment. They're listening. They are really listening. And, and he has them, which is one of the things, all he's done up to this point is his introduction of the sermon. He hasn't really started preaching yet. And at some point in, in your lesson, and we would, you know, we would, you know, have the, the introduction, which is that invitation to come with me, and I want to show you something. I want you to see something that I saw this week in this text. Capture their attention. Whatever you do, capture their attention so that they're listening when you start preaching. And he has their attention. And so he says to them, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, and that's been a name that's been on their tongue for the past several days. And when he says Jesus of Nazareth, their, their interest is piqued. A man attested to you, proved to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Does it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Or maybe I'd say it this way. Does it surprise you that nothing ever surprises God? 
This Jesus, a man who was proved by God through the, the powers and the signs and the wonders and the miracles that he performed, by the definite plan of God, nothing has surprised God in all of this. You crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus, that God proved who he was. Do you understand the Pharisees never denied the miracles of Jesus? They didn't like it. They told him he couldn't do it on that day. He, he couldn't heal that person on the Sabbath day. But they never denied his power and the miracles. And, and Peter has this. He's, he's a lawyer building the case for who Jesus Christ is and what he means to us. So he goes on to say, you remember what King David said? King David, in my humble opinion, probably the, the greatest earthly king this world has ever known. Remember what David said? That one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever? Now, Peter goes on to say, now David died. He was buried. His grave is still with us today, but not Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, God raised from the dead. And, and, and there are eyewitnesses in that city that again, just like God attested to, to Jesus through powers and signs and miracles, there are people that have been talking and saying to others, I've seen him. He's raised from the dead. This is why David would write, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. It is this Jesus, Peter says, who is sitting now perpetually on the throne of David. This is something that two weeks earlier would have been mind-boggling to them. But now all of a sudden, pieces of these these Old Testament writings are kind of falling into place. And they're understanding this more. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That's that New Testament word for the Old Testament word, Messiah. Here's your Messiah. This Jesus, whom you crucified. The man that God attested through the powers and signs and wonders and miracles and the lame walk, the sick are healed, the dead are raised. That Jesus that God proved who he was. That Jesus who is raised from the dead and there are witnesses. That Jesus you crucified. Now there is the feeling of being lost. But I can't imagine there is a greater feeling of being lost than knowing that you were part of the conspiracy. Crucify him. Crucify him. His blood be on our hands and our children, or our heads and our children. It's one thing to know you're lost, but to know that you're lost because you crucified the Messiah. 
the Son of God. I don't think you can feel more lost than that, which is why I believe most of us have read the next statement maybe wrong. I don't know that it was wrong. I just think maybe we see it wrong. Because now these men say, brothers, what must we do to be saved? And we get the idea that all of a sudden they sincerely want to know what they should do to be saved. I don't, I'm not sure that's what they're asking. I wonder, and I think, I think if I put myself in their place, what I would be saying is, well, brothers, what can we do to be saved? And they just throw their hands up like, there's not a, we're, we're toast. What can we do to be saved? There's nothing we can do. It's over for us. I don't know that that's exactly what they mean, but I, 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 that's what I would mean if I, if I know I just crucified the Son of God. Well, what can I do to be saved? And Peter says, I'll tell you what you can do. Oop, I already got it up there. You can repent, be baptized, every last one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. You remember, you remember their mission? You're going to start right here in Jerusalem and you're going to preach the message of repentance and forgiveness. There it is. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now some in that city listened to those words and they laughed and they mocked. But others really listened and they were cut to the heart. And they were baptized. 3,000 that day. I think what you're seeing in Acts chapter 2, if I can say some things that might be a little different than what we normally say about chapter 2, you're seeing God's plan put into action. His only plan. There is no plan B. If these apostles had gone back in Jerusalem and had done anything different than what Jesus told them to do, it would have been disastrous. Peter could have just taken charge of the group and said, I know, I know that we're supposed to wait around, but you know me. I'm a little bit impetuous. I have a difficult time waiting around, and so I put a plan together, and when God does what he's going to do through the Holy Spirit, we'll, we'll, all, we'll all know that then. But right now, let's get started. I'm so excited. Let's just get started. And James and John, you go start going from one city to the next, all through Judea, and start teaching in the name of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And, and Matthew, you and Bartholomew, you go up to Samaria and start preaching. If anybody needs it, it's those people up in Samaria. And you get started. Take Matthias with you. Start showing him the ropes. And get up there and start evangelizing Samaria. And the rest of you, just go anywhere. Go to the ends of the earth and just start preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. You know what you need to be talking about. Just go do that. And I'll stay right here in Jerusalem. I know Jerusalem. I'll work the streets. I'll start teaching people here in this city. And we'll get started today. If they had taken that route and done anything different than what God told them to do, it would have been disastrous. But what you see in Acts chapter 2 is the plan of God being worked out. When you follow God's plan exactly, you get exactly 
what God expected or what God intended. I've always had a great appreciation for architects. How many of you have been a part of a building program at your congregation where maybe you as the minister get to work with the architect on what you want and do? And we have a church administrator that does most of that for us at, at Circe. But, but I've been a part of that too. And it always fascinates me, these people that are able to sort of envision something and get it down on paper and hand it over to a construction manager who, who takes care of all the laborers and, and if they will follow the architect's plan precisely, then, then they will build exactly what he intended. We understand this. When I, my kids were small and I would buy something from the store, a bicycle or some other big box that said on the front of it, assembly required, I hate those boxes. Because I don't read instructions very well. Even if I do read them, I don't follow them very well because sometimes they're awfully complicated. And at the end of building whatever it is, I'll have nuts and bolts and screws and a cable and things aren't moving up and down the way they are because I didn't follow the instructions exactly. But God is the master architect. I mean, you look at all of the universe and you can see that he is the master creator and architect. But he looked at the scheme of redemption, as we would call it, that, that plan that he had for the salvation of mankind, and it started before the foundations of the world were ever laid. And, and it was a detailed plan in the mind of God that included Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It went from Moses to David. It went from the prophets, and it included John the Baptist. And this detailed plan of God also meant that his son would leave the splendor of heaven, come to this earth, he would live a perfect life, an innocent life, and yet he would be falsely accused, and lawless men would put him to death on a cross, and he would be raised. Nothing outside of the definitive plan of God. He was raised on the third day. But that plan didn't stop there. This plan also included these apostles who would start in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world, taking a message of repentance and forgiveness with them. And when you look throughout all of the book of Acts, you, you see them following God's plan precisely. And they teach the same thing as they go. The other thing I would tell you is this gospel message that, they, that they're taking, repentance and forgiveness, it never changes. Now, I don't know about you, but I suspect you're a lot like me. Everything in my life changes. I know, I know sooner bought my iPhone 10, I get home and I see a, a commercial of, of about another phone that's faster and bigger and brighter and, and more powerful than it. We're always changing. Everything around us changes. I think it's, it's so easy to get accustomed to change that we think everything changes. And we live in a world that thinks everything changes, including the gospel. But it doesn't. When you read through the book of Acts, and they start in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They're preaching that message of repentance and forgiveness. And when you go through, and it, it, it starts with, with the, the Ethiopian eunuch and the Philippian jailer and Lydia. And every city in every household and in every individual, 
the same message is taught. And one of the things we need to remind our people is, if you were at college church on Sunday morning, you would have heard the gospel preached, and it is that you can be saved by faith and repentance and baptism to have forgiveness of sin. If you were at Graymere on Sunday, you would have heard faith and repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sin. If you go into your pulpits this coming Sunday, you're going to hear faith and re repentance and baptism and the forgiveness of sin. And if you come back a year from now, you're going to hear the same message. Or ten years from now, you're going to hear the same message because that message never changes. Nor does people's response to the gospel message. It never changes. In Acts 2, there's some people that are so prejudiced. They are not going to listen to these apostles. They don't, they don't understand how they can talk in these languages. They're not going to listen. They laugh. They mock. They turn their back. They do everything to persuade the, the crowd. But there are some that day who listen. And their hearts are pierced. They're pricked. And they obey this message of repentance that leads to forgiveness. 3,000 of them on that day. When you come in just another chapter or two, you're going to find out it's 5,000 men plus women and children. But it's growing. And it's growing because of the response that these people, the people, these 5,000 men, it's the same response that those on the day of Pentecost gave. And the thing that we need to remind our people is this, when we follow God's plan exactly, we get exactly what God intends. And when, it, and when you're bringing this kind of a lesson to a close, you've got to get down on the streets with the people where they are. If you don't do that, I don't know why we need you. They can read Acts 2 for themselves. But we have marriages that are in deep trouble, even in our fellowship. I, I know it's true at college church. Maybe we're the only church. I doubt it. We have some, we have some Christian marriages that are in serious trouble, some of which this time next year they will not still be together if they continue down the same road they're going. And elders are counseling them. And preachers are trying to encourage them. And Bible class members are trying to, to, to give them strength to carry on. But they're, just, they're doing everything wrong. And yet the Bible is so clear that as mothers and fathers, what kind of parents should you be? How do you raise your children up in the teaching and the admonition of the Lord? God tells you his plan for you as a parent raising children. And, and if you follow God's plan, then your children are going to be raised exactly as God expected. And the Bible's very clear that husbands are to love their wives the way Christ loves the church. And, and, and folks, we don't have a clue altogether what that means. It's far more than we think it means. To love the church and to love your wife. And, and wives are to honor and to respect their husbands. And, and if marriages are falling apart in your congregation... One of your jobs as the preacher is to remind them that if your marriage is falling apart, you are not following God's plan. Because it's true of every area of your life that if, you, if you'll follow what God's plan is 
for parents, for homes, for marriages, for relationships, for, for living peacefully, Romans 12, maybe with those people who would be your enemies. If you follow God's plan, you'll get exactly what God intended. And, and the other thing that I would remind you about is that it's not just your job to preach this message of repentance and forgiveness. We're a team. And too many times, churches have said, you're the guy. This is where the gospel is preached. It's preached by you on Sunday morning in this auditorium, and if people are going to be saved, it's going to be right here and in this place. No wonder we're not baptizing the way they did on the day of Pentecost. These folks weren't in a church building. I don't think it existed at that time. But, but they're out there where the people are. And one of the things we have to inspire in our people again is to take this message of repentance and forgiveness and take it outside of the building and take it to work on Monday and to school on Monday. And, and we're a part of a team. That was God's plan. God's plan was never that you would be the only ones preaching this gospel. But he gave us this great commission that all of us, everywhere we go, we are to be making disciples. Our job, our great commission is not to baptize people. The great commission is said, make disciples. Now, how do you make disciples? Well, you baptize them, but you also teach them all that I have. <coughs> but getting them in the water is not, is not the primary function. But once they are a Christian, now we're going to teach them to observe God's plan for their life and their marriage and their kids and their work and their relationships. And we are a team in this. And one of the reasons I believe in my heart that the church is not growing as it should is because you guys are the only ones in too many churches that are taking the message of repentance and forgiveness into the world. I love what someone said years ago in a congregation that had about 300 families. And he said, what we need in this church is 300 buses. And what he meant was, every one of you as a family can bring someone to be a part of the Bible class and worship, a home study, a home group, a fellowship, and, and into your home. And you can start bringing them through your relationship with them. You can start bringing them and leading them uh, to the Lord. I want to stop now because I think we need to open it up for some questions and answers. But uh, just anybody want to make a comment? Something that you observed from Acts chapter 2. All right. Well, let's just open it up to Q&A. And I think this is, you can ask about... Acts chapter 2, you can ask about just preaching in general, ministry, relationships between elders and, el and preachers, and, and I think that that's one of the topics later, but, but let's just open it up. What questions do you want to talk about? And by the way, I know I'm not the expert in the room. There's guys in here that know far more than I do about a lot of this stuff. Anybody got a question? I got one. Yeah. Right. What are yeah. some of your other favorite themes from Acts 2? Specifically, I know a lot of times we focus on the last uh, bit there, but do you have you, you yourself and your preaching or anything else find other good themes to 
preach on it. Well, I preached through the. I mean, I preached through the entire Book of Acts. Now it's a long series, so I, I broke it up into three different series at, at different times. And one was the birth of the church, and that, and then it was the expanse of the kingdom, uh, especially as it went into Samaria and uh, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And then the uh, and then the third series was the um, I called it the traveling man. We just followed Paul, and we went through the. Uh, 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 the life and the travels of Paul on his missionary journeys. But as far as themes, uh, th that's one of the things that I've done is I, I break it down into three because, um, I don't know, it, it, you just stay in a series so long, uh, people kind of tend to uh, sort of got apathetic in that. They're all they're all gung ho about it at first, but then well, we've been in we've been in Acts, we've been in John a long time. Uh, but I don't know that I look at themes as as much as um, I try to make every lesson. Even when I'm preaching right now, I'm in the Gospel of John. I just um, John on Sunday nights. I'm actually just about to finish uh, the Epistle of James on Sunday morning, and, and I try to make it so that every text that I deal with can stand on its own. You don't, it's not like a, you know, one of these TV series. Whereas if you miss two or three episodes, you come back and think, well, who's that character? You know, what, well, what is, where'd she come from? You know, what do they mean by that? Well, if you, if, if you make one lesson dependent on the one before that, which was dependent on the one before that, I think people can get lost. So I try to make sure that every text can stand on its own two legs and be understood and be meaningful, even if they weren't here last Sunday. Or maybe they're not going to be here next Sunday. But, uh, so I don't look for themes as much as what did the author mean in this context when he wrote those words. Okay. You got an idea on that yourself? Um, I mean, there's just... Uh, I know I've heard different things... Uh, like I said, we oftentimes we focus on that last, you know, the mm -hmm. the salvation part as far as that goes. But I mean, there's some good stuff about talking about premillennialism with yeah. uh, Jesus on the throne. Um, uh, yeah. You know, talking about how to use the okay. how to use Old Testament passages, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps you know, um, yeah. different things like that. Well, I think. Uh, is that what you're going to be talking about a little bit later? So I'm going to leave that to him. Uh, but yeah, I mean, every every verse you're looking at, you, you need to be thinking to me, you need to think outside the box. For instance, when I preached this passage not very long ago at College Church, I think if I were preaching it today, it would have been different than the day that I preached it sometime back. Because we've had a school shooting. You see, when he talked about Jesus of Nazareth, he was talking about something that everybody was talking about. And I think that's a mistake if you are not talking about what everybody is talking about. And if I were preaching this today, one of the things I would say is that the same darkness that gets into the hearts of evil men to falsely accuse and put to death an innocent person. It's exactly what happened. Satan is still alive and at work, and he thinks he's victorious because he has this country in turmoil because of what happened in Florida, as terrible as that is. But there is still good news. 
while we're talking about Florida, we also need to be sharing this message of repentance and forgiveness and salvation. And, and how many of you have illustration books? And I saw your hand. I'm coming to you. How many of you have illustration books in your office? And, and, uh, and I used to have a lot. I have, I don't guess I have hardly any anymore. In fact, I never, I never get my illustrations from an illustration book or an illustration website. That will start out with, in 1862, there was a missionary in China. What does that have to do with us today? You want to know where I get the majority of my illustrations today? I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. And that's the honest truth. Because they're talking about what everybody is talking about. And they also give some good perspectives that I, that I need to kind of bring into some of my, my thoughts. But if, if you're still using in your preaching the same illustrations you used 5 and 10 and 15 years ago, shame on you. And, and you're not giving what, what, your, what your people need to hear. They need to hear, they need to, they need to know that you're, you have your ear to the ground. And you can help relate how does the gospel meet the needs of our culture today. It, the gospel never changes. And the world is just as dark today as it was in the first century. And we need to be talking about the things that are in the headlines. And especially when it, it appears that Satan is winning the battle. Go, go ahead with your question. One of the things we're emphasizing at Monrovia is uh, small groups and relationships. Yes. And uh, really the latter part of Acts 2 is where the discipling yeah. is occurring. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the uh, times where we are in the past have answered questions that people are asking. Okay. And so in the small groups, you tend to hear what really people think and not just what makes good hallway conversation. Yeah. And uh, so that's where you can teach somebody that is either having a need or a problem or misunderstanding or. Maybe they just haven't gone there before. Okay. And so now they're they're having questions they don't know the answer to. Okay. That's a good thought. Just to illustrate your point. <clears throat> What's your illustration? <laughs> um, what was being talked about at the time? Mm -hmm. Christ being crucified. Yes. So he captured that opportunity. He he took that he took that opportunity now and understand that you know, that is the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, that's 2 Corinthians. That's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel. That needs to be preached. But it's not the only way of preaching the gospel. And, um, but uh, one of the things I was uh, critiquing a uh, preaching class. They invited me along with some other preachers to come and preach, uh, critique some of the young ministers that are on campus and all that. And they asked me to come and talk to them about some things. And one of the things I told them are the three rules of preaching. Illustrate, illustrate, and illustrate. I mean, that's what Jesus did. Everything he taught his disciples, he illustrated. And he used things around nature and things that were very close and obvious and understandable. But you, you need to become 
a master illustrator. And I don't mean that I'm one, you know, I'm not trying to say I am one. But you just need to attempt to become a good storyteller. And especially things that you, your radar, your illustration radars need to be up all the time looking for contemporary cultural things that are happening uh, that you can, that you can, uh, that you can bring into. I'll give you a, uh, an example of one of the best illustrations. Dale, you may have been there tonight. Uh, it was a few years ago at the Harding Lectureships and Bruce McClarty was given the topic of the Good Samaritan. I felt sorry for Bruce McClarty. I don't like Bruce McClarty. I say that in all honesty because every preacher I have ever followed had the common decency to move out of town. <laughs> except Bruce McClarty. So he's there. And actually we're very, very dear friends. But on the night he was preaching on the, on the, the Good Samaritan, I felt sorry for him because what can you say about the Good Samaritan that hasn't already been said? And were you there the night that he had the files? Were any of you there... And at the end of that lesson, he told the story about his wife as a school teacher that every subject had files. And everything you needed to know about that particular subject was in these files in this notebook. And every time we meet someone, we open up a file and we start putting information in about that person. Whether we like it or don't or whatever, we put information in there and that's your file. And he held up these files and he held up one and... Uh, uh, because he was talking about the, the priest and the Levite and then the Samaritan, ooh, the bit Samaritan, you know. But he held up that folder, that first file, and it said Democrats. We were in the, we were in the throes of the election season, you know, at, at that time. And, and it said Democrats. And some of you think there's not a good Democrat anywhere. In fact, you may even be one of these that has said those terrible words, how can you be a Christian and be a Democrat? And then he held up the Republican because there's some of you that don't think there's a decent Republican. Anyway, and so he, he held up re Democrat, Republican, black, white, he, all these different subjects of people that we, we, sort of, we just sort of say they're good folks or they're bad folks. I mean, he had... Um, he had skinheads. I mean, he went, he, he kind of covered the gamut of, of, of people that there are some have a prejudice against. I'm just saying, when he finished that illustration, every preacher in that room said, I'm going to steal that illustration. <laughs> it was that powerful. And, and that, was the, that was the message of the Good Samaritan is that we need to open up new files on, on, on all of these people because there are good people everywhere. But even the good people need the gospel. You know? But that's just the power of, of being a gifted illustrator. And you can't do that out of your books. Throw them away. Whatever you do today, if you learn nothing else, go home and throw your illustration books away. What time do we need to finish, Andrew? Okay, go ahead. We, we own it. I, I get what you're saying, and I agree. You know, Acts 2, you said that at the beginning of the class. Mm -hmm. other speak. And I understand what you're saying. It's very clear to us. We understand it. What, in your experience, anybody's experience, just kind of open this question up to everybody in the uh -huh. What is it? Why can't everybody own it? I mean, I understand my answer on most, but, but are there any general arguments or beliefs that just put a block on Acts chapter 2 like we understand it to other 
Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Well, and I first of all, I don't, I don't carry the responsibility around for everyone to obey the gospel. I'm, I'm going to leave that to the Holy Spirit and the convicting power that He has. Any more than I tell young women and couples that I'm doing premarital counseling with, and one of the things I tell young women is, it is not your job to change your husband. You sit at that altar, I take you just as you are, to love and cherish you, to honor us, just like you are. And it's the job of the Holy Spirit of God to change an individual. So, so, so don't carry the responsibility around, but understand that if you keep preaching the message faithfully, the response of people will never change. We have a lady, Rebecca Goodman, who started coming to our Monday night caring and sharing. We have a wonderful program that feeds about 125 to 150 people every Monday night of our community, and they come for a good, warm, cooked meal, every bit as good as you sit down and eat in your home. We have a home-cooked meal, uh, which probably is the most nourishing meal some of these folks get all week long. And they, but before they get that physical meal, they get a spiritual meal. We, we have a good gospel, positive message uh, that they hear week after week after week. And Rebecca Goodman came about four years ago, and she came a number of nights, got into a Bible study. We have one-on-one -on -one studies on those same nights. And she was in that study, and then also, but she finally quit those studies saying... I just don't know why you keep saying and teaching that I need to be baptized. And in her mind, she just, that was a block to her. Because she has been from one church to another church to another. She says, I've seen too many people be back, uh, to be saved without being baptized. I've, I've heard too many pastors who have saved people without teaching baptism. So I don't know why you, you know... Keep teaching me I need to be baptized. Why do we keep coming to this text or that text? And so she left us. And she'd go to another church. She went to the Bible Fellowship Church. She went to this other church. But every place she went, she kept being confronted with the same Bible verses that, that she had been taught in those studies here. And, and it took a while. And it took a, a, a little bit of softening her heart but she finally came back a few weeks ago and said, I need to be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins. And I guess I tell you that to say, I don't know why some people hear the message, like on the day of Pentecost, there was far more than 3,000 people that heard that message. I don't know why it is that some people, their hearts are not pricked. But some are. If we will just be faithful to teach the truth, in love and to, and to do it in a loving way then let God's spirit give the increase. Is that where you're going with that or what do you want? Yeah, I, yeah that's fine. I, yeah. Just, I just thought in yeah. the world of religion I thought well, are there just some anger because some other groups I'm sure or some other people probably think oh we've got accidental like, well you know I understand they're misunderstanding. I'm not sure if I'm asking the question but just what are some of the, the major roadblocks that people run into? Because I've talked with um, to denominational friends, and I've heard some things. Is, is it the common, the same thing that comes up time and time again? And we, you know, and it's just like I just didn't know. Well, like like uh, one minister in, in Cersei that I've been talking to later, he believes very strongly 
in baptism. He thinks every person who is a child of God is baptized, but he says there's dry baptisms and there's wet baptisms. That was kind of a new one for me. You know, but everyone is, is there, there is, it's the baptism of the heart. You know, it's a dry baptism. It's exactly the words he used with me. But that, that their heart is baptized into Christ uh, that way. And uh, I don't know why some people just, they, they are either, now part of it is that, that some people just don't come to the gospel and obedience because, quite frankly, they're not willing to give up, you know, their life and, and, and their enjoyment. They're just, they're, just, they're just not ready to give that up to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. And, and folks, one of the things we have to be teaching our people, you know, um, do you know how many times, and I don't remember the statistics now, do you know how many times that the followers of Jesus are called Christian in the New Testament? Twice. Is it twice? And it's not even until you get to chapter 11 that they're even... And even then, it was kind of a term of, of derision. You know? Uh, oh, they're the Christians. How many times did, did the Scriptures call the, the followers disciples? Be because you can be a Christian in this world and you can pass right by the needs of, of people like the, the, the man on the uh, road from Jerusalem down to Jericho. You can, be, you can call yourself a Christian and just, and just ignore what's going on in the world and what's happening in this family or that marriage or that home and, and the needs of that person. But a disciple can't. See the difference? That's why, the, that's why it says, go and make disciples who follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Doing what Jesus would do in that situation. Speaking the way Jesus would speak. Loving the people that Jesus would love. See, a Christian can be prejudiced and still be a Christian. They can still love God and go to church and be a Christian, but a disciple cannot carry hatred in his heart. There's a difference between that being a Christian and being a disciple. And, and I think when we I think to, to become a disciple is the biggest roadblock that people have in obedience to the gospel. Um, that's part of it. Just I wanted to ask you a more technique question. Uh -huh. Going back to the illustrations I just, in your presentation today, I noticed a lot of times where you would pause and say something to help help us enter the text or mm -hmm. relate to the people in the text. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of my one of my shortfalls in preaching is not pausing enough to, if you want to call it, illustrate or help people to connect yeah. with what's being taught. So yeah. it may be second nature to you at this point, but I just wondered if there was, as you prepare a question that you ask yourself or what reminds you or, or what do you what do you do in order to help the text connect with the people that you're preaching to yeah as you go along yeah well and I'm all, like I said, I'm always looking for illustrations especially illustrations from the lives of people that they know you know maybe in the congregation or someone or maybe someone you know in the news and all. now yesterday 
uh, I preached Sunday morning from the uh, from James, and I was talking about where James uh, uh, is talking about don't don't avenge yourselves. You don't you don't you don't take vengeance out. You know that's Romans twelve and James five. But talking about that, you be patient, knowing that the coming of the Lord is at hand. So be patient. Wait on God. If there's something that needs to be right, to do it. Well, I in January. I saw a documentary on, uh, on television, and it was on January 27th, which marked Memorial Day of Holocaust. Did you know Holocaust had a Memorial Day? And it's January 27th, and it was a documentary about a group of Holocaust survivors that were part of a conspiracy, a secret organization. After the war, the leader of the, uh, you can see this on the internet, and you can watch it on, on uh, YouTube and Daily Motion. You can see this documentary. But their leader was Abba Kovner, and he put together this secret organization of Holocaust survivors, all now in their 90s. But in 1985, they recorded cassette tapes of uh, all of these people's remembrance of this conspiracy. Because after the war, they infiltrated the uh, German cities water supply, and they were going to poison it with arsenic. And their hope was that they would kill six million Germans, adults and children, just like they had killed six million Jews. In fact, their name was called Nakam. I think uh, you may have to help me on that. Is that right? It's been a few weeks. Uh, uh, Nakam, which in Hebrew means Avengers. That was, a, that was their sole purpose for this organization, was to avenge the six million Jews. And one of the things I brought out in that illustration is all the way through, I won't tell you if they were successful or not, um, or how successful they were even. I'm gonna, you can watch that for yourself, but I will tell you that all the way through this documentary, I found myself hoping they were successful. And I got caught up in the, yes, if anyone, they told some of the most gruesome stories of atrocities I've ever heard. And if anyone deserved revenge and retaliation, these people did. I got caught up in that. Just like we all get caught up. It's one of the strongest human, and that's the thing you have to remind folks, that you as a preacher, you still carry these, I have this, I think inside of me, the strongest emotion I carry is the need to get even when people wrong me. And when James tells me that be patient for the coming of the Lord is hand, that's hard for a guy like me because God has spiritually gifted me with comebacks. I'm, I'm good at it. I mean, if you come up to me and you're rude and abrasive, then you've just given me permission to put you in your place. I am gifted at it. So someone like me, it's a spe and, I, and I think you need to confess at times, someone like me, this verse is really hard for me. It's easy for my wife. My wife doesn't have a mean bone in her body. And, and even at times, she's a dental hygienist, sometimes people will be very critical of her because she says, you need to have this kind of treatment. It's going to cost $800. Oh, you're just trying to sell me a bunch of stuff that's not necessary. 
and she is so kind and she is so gracious when they, when they are very hateful at times to her. It comes, it's, she's better at it than I am. So I think the confession, um, there, and, and oh, a while back I was preaching where um, Jesus is, uh, Luke, is it Luke chapter uh, 11, Lord teach us to pray. And he gives them that abbreviated, uh, Luke gives us the abbreviated Lord's Prayer there in, in uh, Luke 11. Then he tells the story. Um, and, and at the end of the story, he says this. How much more does your heavenly Father know how to give good things or good gifts to your children? Now, that's not what Luke says. That's how we remember it. Because that's how Matthew says it. How much more does God know how to give good things or gifts to those who ask? Luke says, how much more does the, does the Father know how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Folks, I don't know about you, but that meant a world of difference to me, especially on the heels of something that had just happened that week. I was putting a shower head... So I, I mean, I do a lot of confessing in balance. I don't confess a lot so that it's just kind of like I'm just always regurgitating how bad I am every week. And I don't make myself the hero of very many illustrations either. But I, I try to say whatever you're going through during the course of a week, trust me, I have the same thing. I don't wake up in the morning to an alarm clock that has the voices of angels. I, I mean, my family is just like your family. And I was changing out a shower head in our, our daughter's uh, and son-in-law's uh, house. And, and it just wouldn't go in right. And I was impatient because there was a Hardy basketball game that night. And I wanted to get to it. And I was in a hurry to get to it. And so I'm trying to do this shower head. And my wife, just nicest person on the planet, my wife is, is saying, well, now, did, you, did you put the plumber's tape on me? Yes, I did. Do you need this? Do you have that? She's asking these questions. And I said... I said, Lael, just let me do this. And she kept asking questions, and she just kept inserting herself. And finally I said, please, just let, would you leave me alone for just a few minutes? And she kept on and, and, and asking questions, and finally I barked at her. And I said, Lael, would you please shut up? And she did. And I told them that morning, that the worst part of that was not only did I speak to my wife in a very hateful way, my, my new son-in-law was standing right there. And if he treated his wife the way I treated my wife, I would have been in his grill. And, and I confess that morning. My prayer was not that I would have forgiveness. Oh, I needed forgiveness. I needed forgiveness from my wife and from my God and from my son-in-law. I needed to apologize and ask for forgiveness from all of them. But my prayer really needed to be, fill me with your spirit. Because someone who is filled with the spirit of God doesn't lash out like that. Doesn't take revenge. Doesn't get... And that's where, at times, we have to be just as real as anybody in the room. 
And too many preachers are kind of a little bit afraid because if you think it diminishes you in the eyes of your, of your congregation, not so. But when they, when they see that you're trying to be honest with God and honest with them, and you're not the hero, and you're not trying to make yourself out to be, I'm just a, just a scoundrel, I don't know why you let me preach. I think they want, I want, they want someone who can relate to them. And if anything, that's what the illustrations do is it, it helps them to relate with what's going on in the world and what God is doing, and, and that you're, and you're in this same spiritual battle with them, and that you don't have a handle on, on, on everything as well. But my radars are up, and, and sometimes I'm looking for that story, but sometimes I realize I just made the story, and I need to do, I need to do a little bit of confessing myself. And then we follow that, that, that service with a prayer. And I pray for all of us and for myself. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach me how to pray. And, uh, and fill me with, with your spirit. So when they, I, I, just, getting, just kind of getting down real with them like, like that. And I'll tell you, those illustrations of that China missionary, 1862, that won't cut it. That'll, you'll never prick a heart with those stories. All right? Anybody else? And trust me, I am, I am not the most gifted speaker you'll ever hear. So, but uh, but I, do, I do firmly believe that you have to illustrate, illustrate, illustrate. All right, are we about done? All right, thank you guys. I, and I'll, I'll be with you today, and I'm looking forward to the other speakers very much. God bless you.